I'm going to talk about discouragement today um, as a theme. It's come up a lot in the week, and, and sometimes I'll start thinking about a message topic, and then for a couple of days, people will be talking about it, and I'll think, yeah, this is probably for this Sunday. It's not always like that. And I do just want to begin by, by wanting to be gracious. I know there is a whole spectrum of, you know, disappointment through discouragement through despair to, like, feeling deadly terrible. And my intention is not to guilt trip or attack or make anything worse for anybody this morning. Um, and so I just like to say that. And so if it seems like I'm coming after you, or make it, making it worse. It definitely isn't my intention. Um, for my own street cred in talking about discouragement, I think I was discouraged since the early teenage years through to sometime in my 30s as a regular emotional experience in life. Um, when we moved to Steinbeck, and this wasn't because of moving to Steinbeck, there were years where I would spend it about a month. We'd call it like, what did we used to call that? The, the Well, we call it melancholy, but I'd be like, get the downs or something like this, or getting a funk. Yeah, that's what we'd call it, getting a funk. And it could last for like a month of not having a hopeful thought, just going through days and being very unpleasant to live with. And so I, I wouldn't say that's my experience now, but... I feel like I've, I've kissed the rose and felt the thorn somewhat in this area and drank from the cup fairly deep um, without having an experience of like being hospitalized or something like that. But that's my story, and we could talk more if you want to. Um, but I, I believe that discouragement is real, and I believe that discouragement it doesn't have to be a life sentence. And one of the biggest things that changed things for me was just seeing how my efforts to deal well with discouragement made other people's lives better. And that was valuable to me. So we're going to look at the life of Elijah for a bit. Under the broom tree, God helps Elijah, a discouraged servant. So before I can look at Elijah spending a night under the broom tree, broom tree, I need to do the big recap. If you remember the life of Elijah, I always stumble whenever I try to do a pullback eagle eye view because I want to pull back all the way. So in the beginning, <laughs> everything went terribly wrong. And God's plan was to create a people who walked with God so that other people could see what it's like to walk with God. And he chose a man named Abraham, and he was going to bless the whole world through Abraham's descendants. And part of that plan included giving them the promised land, which is like Israel nowadays, more or less. Abraham had some descendants. They ended up in Egypt. They ended up in slavery for 400 years. They were rescued by a guy named Moses who took them to the edge of the promised land. And then Joshua led them into the promised land to occupy that place. And things went somewhat south right off the bat pretty much. As soon as Joshua died, you have the book of Judges where the people keep turning away from God to worship something else. And then things go bad and God is rescuing them through the judges and wrestling with them for their hearts. And finally, God does a big good thing through this guy named David, 
who is anointed as king, and Israel has their best years under the reign of David, even though he has a significant moral failure right in the middle of it. And David's son is named Solomon, and Solomon is the wisest king who ever reigned and the richest king who ever reigned, but destroyed his reign by having too many wives who didn't believe in God, and his heart was turned away from the Lord. And so in response, God cut the nation of Israel in two, Judah with Benjamin inside in the south, and all the other tribes in the north. You track with me so far. The northern kingdom only had bad kings. Kings who could name the name of Yahweh, the Lord, but their hearts were never devoted to him. In the southern king to Judah, they pretty much went like good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Though none of the kings were as good as David, and eventually Judah itself was also destroyed and sent into exile. In the middle of the book of Kings, and I'm talking about the Bible book of Kings, God demonstrates that even when the kings are unbelieving rulers, he still reigns over his people by sending miracle-working prophets to go and rule and reign in his name. So that even the kings are like little toys to the <laughs> miracle-working prophets, namely Elijah and then his, his uh his sidekick, his disciple, yeah, that's right. Like a sidekick who does better, where Robin is better than Batman, um, Elisha. So this is Elijah. He's a miracle-working prophet, and his ministry is to try to maintain the presence of God in northern Israel in an age of a wicked king. And if you remember, his ministry starts by declaring a three-year famine over the land, and then hightailing it out of there. And he just disappears while things get drier and drier and dire and dire. And then after the three years, God sends him back to go and um, fix things. And Elijah kind of has this great, awesome moment. He goes and he gathers together all the priests of Baal, which is like the competing religion of the day, which would be for us like a, mi a mix of like climate and wokeness all mixed together. So he gets all the, the woke leaders together with their God, and he alone is going to fight against them with his God. And if you remember, he sets up this like competition. It's the World Cup of Powerful Gods. Thanks for the segue again. It's the World Cup of Powerful Gods, and they've got all their 450 or whatever priests. And he says, you guys are going to pray for as long as you want. I'm going to pray, and whichever God sends fire from heaven on the offering we present... Let all the people realize that that's the real God. Do you remember this story? And it's so good. You know, the priests are running around and they're cutting themselves and they're mutilating themselves, trying to get their God's attention. And nothing's happening. And Elijah starts making fun of them, which is one of my favorite parts of Scripture, where he's like, maybe your God is asleep or maybe he's on a journey or maybe he's stuck on the toilet. Like he says that. Maybe he's like, you know, trying, can't finish the paperwork in his own biz, personal business. And he's just making fun of them. And they're trying harder. And then he gets all the water thrown on his own offering. He's cut up the offering. Everybody's watching. And he says, well, make it really wet and pour more water on it. And then he prays. He says, God, show everybody that you're real and turn their hearts back to them. And God answers with fire. And I don't know if it's like a fireball from heaven or just like a bunch of lightning strikes. <laughs> but the, the whole altar is destroyed. 
It's not just like a little warming fire where, you know, with some nice barbecue with the, the wet beef or whatever it was. The whole altar is destroyed by God's response. And then in the midst of the hubbub, the people are terrified and excited and they kill all the priests. And, um, and then it's time to deal with the drought. And so Elijah goes up on a mountain. He starts praying and he prays seven times, sending a servant to go look out in the water or look out to the sky every time. And after like the seventh prayer, a little cloud comes and he's like, yes, it's happening. And then he goes and he runs 40 kilometers from Mount Carmel to Jezreel before the chariot of Ahab in celebration because the rains are coming to end the drought. It's a pretty high point and great smiling because he knows that you can't run 40 kilometers in the Middle East without help from God. It's like this miracle where he tucks in his robe and he runs before a chariot for 40 kilometers. So it's, he's ultra-marathoning it under the power of God. But this is like a high point. God has answered with major public miracle. And Ahab, which is the king at the time, is a super wishy-washy king. One minute he's kind of humbling himself, the next minute he's attacking people. He's just this total spineless jellyfish of a man. And for a minute, it looks like Ahab's going to believe in the Lord again. Because Ahab is bringing Elijah back to his, his house in celebration for the power of God being on display. Right? So it's, it's this high point. That's the big recap. And then this happens. And Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, who is a, a princess from an unbelieving nation that he married. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And these were Jezebel's prophets. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, excuse me, which is how they said, I swear. So I swear if I do not make, like, well, may bad things happen to me if I don't make your life as the life of one of those, of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. This is one discouraged person. In the space of 24 hours, going from calling down fire from heaven and rain from the clouds and running a marathon and a half in front of a chariot in great celebration to hiding out in the desert praying for death. That's pretty severe discouragement. And he's not the only person in the Bible who's ever been so uh, in a state of despair to pray that way. Even Moses himself, when everything went wrong in the desert after he led the people out of Egypt and they began to meet with the Lord, but then they had this terrible moment of making and worshiping the golden calf. Uh, Moses even said, like, 
I'm, I'm done. He had his I'm done moment with God as well. Peter, after denying that he knew Christ, went away and wept bitterly. And kind of assumed it was all over too. Sarah had her moment when the barrenness was going on too long. And even though God had promised her a child, she just couldn't wait any longer and hooked up Abraham with her servant and had an Ishmael. And It's not impossible. It's not uncommon. It's not even impossible to go from like thinking you're getting everything you could ever dream and want from God and then 24 hours later being alone and wishing Yes, that Jesus would come back in the next 30 seconds or so. Kind of crazy, huh? It's kind of a good just reminder how emotionally fragile we can be sometimes. So here's a little meditation on why I think Elijah might be so wrecked. So aspect of Elijah's discouragement... Uh, he had success failure and really unexpected trouble. I think Elijah really thought, you know, this Mount Carmel showdown is going to be the thing that changes everything forever. And it didn't. And I, do you ever have that where you're just like, man, if this one thing would change, then I would be happy for the rest of my life. Have you ever had that? Right now, maybe you're even thinking that. If this one thing in my life or in my heart or in my city or in my country, if that one guy who's always on the news saying things that don't make sense would get out of office and somebody else in, then I would be encouraged forever. And Elijah got everything he could hope for as far as himself and God showing that they got the power and God is real and it didn't stop Jezebel and it didn't change things for real. So he's in the midst of success failure, which I know is a paradox word. It's like a jumbo shrimp or whatever like that. It's an oxymoron. But there is this thing about our souls where when we're trying to do something and trying to accomplish something and hoping if we could just get that thing started or going or done, then ah, will happen. And it doesn't happen. Discouragement is natural and major discouragement is a possibility. And Elijah might just be lying there under the broom tree thinking nothing can fix anything. So why even bother anymore? Does that make sense? Do you think that's like... I, I'm not a Old Testament prophet psychologist, but I do play one on TV. Um, it's a joke. But I'm just saying like, I, he is human, and I could understand being so let down by going from major success to death threats in a few hours would just, just make you want to quit. Number two, he had government failure and personal fear. 
Elijah is an Israelite, and the Israelites all remembered the time when David, the man whose heart was after God, was reigning. And this was their desire, to have a king who loved God more than anybody else in the nation and acted like it. This was their hope, that every king, the next king, would always be the one that was just like David, or just like Solomon. Wiser and better than anybody else and reclaiming the kingdom, rebuilding the kingdom. Every man under his vine, every woman under her fig tree, all the swords beaten into plowshares. Everybody just being able to chill out, sitting on a throne of gold. They remembered David. And they expected David. And here is King Ahab, who should be a David, and his crazy witch queen wife is threatening to murder the prophet of God. That's government failure. And I don't know what the deal is, but uh, Jezebel is such a strong spiritual and personal force that she's able to strike fear into the heart of an Elijah. I think she's a witch queen. Like, she is the head of the priests of Baal. Like, she's their sponsor. She's probably heavily involved in all kinds of demonic witchcraft activity that she brought into the nation and sponsored in the nation. And so this isn't just some lady, like, trash-talking on Twitter She, she's like Satan incarnate in their generation. And she goes after Elijah. And it, even though she doesn't manage to kill him, she does manage to wound him with her words. And he, he, he runs. <clears throat> but just think of like the disappointment. We should be in God's greatest country with the best rulers ever, not having the rulers trying to murder the prophets. Discouragement central. Because whether you like, like them or not, governments do have authority and power and influence like crazy. And you do kind of wish they would use it well. And it can be frightening when they don't. Number three, there's a spiritual people failure. Now, Elijah is kind of overemphasizing how alone he is later on when we talk. But he looks... You can tell, I mean, I didn't quote it, but at, when Elijah's praying for the fire to come down, there's this line where he says, and show that you're turning the people's hearts back to God. He prays that. God, when you send the fire, let it be a sign that there's going to be this great revival. And everyone's going to be like, what were we doing not worshiping God? And I'm going to get rid of all my idols and get rid of all my Baal worship. And I'm going to be a true blue worshiper of Yahweh forever. I'm going to pray and tithe and give and be at peace with my neighbor and, you know, get all clean. And he's expecting a love for God revival to break out with the fire. And it didn't. And even though there are other people believing in the Lord at this time that we kind of meet, that Elijah's not remembering, he is quite alone. And feeling spiritually lonely can be crazy discouraging. 
Not always outside of the will of God, though. Do you think God gives us times of spiritual loneliness to help us learn to rely on him? And then there's also a sense of personal failure. Elijah says here, I'm no better than my father's. And I don't know exactly what he's thinking. Is it because he ran away? Is it because he couldn't bring about the revival? But he internalizes the failure of that generation, turns it into self-resentment or whatever, self-hatred or whatever it is. And he sees that he's overwhelmed by a feeling of personal failure. And he prays for death. That's deeply discouraged. I would like to say one thing about Elijah praying for death. Um, We're in a time, and I'm not trying to overemphasize, but I do believe spiritually that the Canadian elites have made a deep commitment um, to salvation by death. We We are witnessing the rise of death cult in Canada, where many of the real problems that people face, the government wants to present death as a reliable option for dealing with it, whether it's um, problem children or depression or long-term sickness. More and more, our culture is saying, well, why don't you just end your life as a solution to the pains of life, the the regular troubles of life? And this is death cult, um, salvation by, by suicide or something like that. And I would just like to say, uh, I hope gently, that um, it will never be God's will for you to end your life. God is the Lord of life, and he will always have a way out for you. And just as cultures embrace this stuff, the church, often in a desire to be kind and not hurt people's feelings, will make more room for saying, maybe it's okay sometimes, or maybe it's all right, or something like this. And I just want to say gently, it will never be God's will for you to end your own life. He's numbered your days. He's got a plan to help you in all of your days and to visit you and to get you through stuff all of your days. And without any judgment on anybody, I just want to say as well, there are some deceptions about the will to die because we think it's going to end pain, but there isn't a guarantee that it will. There are many people who are choosing medical assistance and death that are going to a worse reality than the one they're trying to escape right now. And even just socially... What it tends to do is it takes the pain I feel, amplifies it, and then spreads it to everybody I love with a pain that really doesn't ever go away. It really hurts the people that love us when people choose to do that. And we just need to be honest about these things. But I will say again, it will never be the will of Jesus who loves you that you end your own life. He he gives us a hope and a future and makes our lives count for good when we keep our eyes fixed on him. Okay? Is that all right? So let's see what God does next. This is not the end. Okay? So Elijah comes. I I tucked in my long undershirt so I can do this. This sweater is a little bit shorter than some. God sees Elijah completely defeated and does not participate. 
This is not the end for Elijah. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And that place Horeb is where God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then I'm skipping a few verses here because there's this interesting thing with God like making natural disasters happen to speak to Elijah and then interpreting those natural disasters. And if you want to know what's going on, I do this thing called the Midweeks on our Calvary website where I do a chapter-by-chapter exposition of all of the Bible, hopefully. And I've done all of Second or Samuel and most of Kings, and I totally spend a long time explaining what's going on here there. So don't say I never did anything for you. But skipping down to this part, and the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, the king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint the king to be king over Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahalah, I think I got it, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And this is what I see God doing. Number one, he provides Elijah with some presents. God is capable of doing anything he wants, any way he wants. That's part of the perks of being God. Us people type people, we can't do that. You know, we rely on technology and physics and all this stuff. But God is able to do anything he wants, any way he wants. And he wants to begin to take care of Elijah by sending a person to him to be with him. And it's an angel. And yes, it's not a human, and yes, it's a spiritual person, but it is a person to interact with Elijah and talks to him and kicks him in the face to wake him up and is there to do good to him. So I just see like the kindness of God to discourage Elijah. Elijah, you've done everything you can to be alone. You've run away even from your servant and are a day's journey in the desert. I'm going to send someone to be with you. Alone esta no bueno, for all of you Spanish speakers. Now you're offended that I call that Spanish, but. <laughs> Solo, would it be sol- solutimus? No, that's Latin. Oh, whatever. Ha, here we go. God told Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. And that is pretty true most of the time. When we're discouraged, we often just want to be alone with our hurt. Alone, like... Pain makes people want to curl up on themselves. Have you ever noticed that? My brother threw a basketball at me one time and hit me right below the belt, and I learned a lesson. I learned that pain makes people want to curl up on themselves and lie down on the ground in a fetal position. Physically, 
Emotionally, relationally, pain makes us want to curl up and hide. Unless you're the strike out and destroy kind of person, but typically it's curl up. And God does not participate with the isolation that Elijah is trying to orchestrate. He sends a spiritual being to him. So when we're discouraged, at the very least, let's participate with people trying to reach out to us. But even if they aren't, please know it would be really good for you not to be alone. Alone isn't going to help. Maybe for a sec if you're a hardcore introvert and you just get your thoughts together while you play video games or whatever. But not long-term and not consistently. The second thing that, again, is really interesting and just gentle and kind from the Lord is that God does some body care. Elijah's out there being spiritual, fasting, and God sends him some flatbread. Hot flatbread. Not like day-olds from the store. Fresh baked bread. Is anybody else here like me like that's the next best thing to the best thing? There's nothing like fresh baked bread. And God sends an angel to make Elijah some fresh baked bread. I feel like that wasn't the first time I made that blunder when I was trying to talk about it, was it? No, okay. Can we erase this once I'm done preaching, please? The internet just doesn't need another mumbler stumbler. Can we just take a pause and just see the tenderness of God dealing with a discouraged person? It's not like he comes like rebuke central first. Hey, Elijah, you, you actually need some food. And he feeds him twice. Can I, I just want to say, like, please see the patient kindness of the Lord dealing with a discouraged person. He could have, Elijah, why did you run away? I just, I just killed like a hundred people right in front of you. With fireballs and everything. Why didn't you just ask for more fireballs? I could have done more fireballs. You could have looked like Ken Ryu having a Shuriken showdown if you wanted to, but no... You ran away. Like, there's no rebuke right off the bat with this discouraged saint. He's feeding him. He's letting him rest. Next thing he does is he gets him moving. This is one of the things about dealing with discouragement that I've been doing more as I get older. It does feel... It's easier to think clearly emotionally after you've done something healthy and creative. Says, Elijah, we're going to talk... But first, you need to go for a 40-day walk. (laughs) That's a few months. Unless it's kind of, he's just kind of like, I'll wait till tomorrow. I don't think that's what he's doing. But he doesn't let him just lie there. He sends him out for some hardcore physical activity. Elijah, you've got some sweating to do. Am I right? Most of us think clearer about hard things after we've done something hard or creative. For me, part of my like regular life is just baking. I love baking. Muffins, banana bread, apple bread. That's all that I managed to make edible. But the, just the process of working on something and having something done is sane-producing. I work in a job that's never done. And you can never tell if people are getting better or not. Well, sometimes you can. 
But it's people work. So it's all like this. And it, it never goes away. And so just to pause and like make something that gets done. And then you can eat. So good for this thing. And so when God sends Elijah, because he could have had that conversation right there. When he sends him to Mount Horeb, you need to cool down for 40 days, bro. You need to tighten up them calves and get them quads working. You need to do a little stretch, lower lumbar, all this stuff. But you need to get some miles on your sandals. I get it. Point number four, honest conversation. When they finally have their great big talk, Elijah talking to God as a friend talks to a friend. God's first question is, so what's going on here? So what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gets to just do this. All the problems, all the things, all the gross, all the disappointment gets it out of his heart, through his mouth, unto the Lord. So much discouragement. I'm not a professional here, and I believe in chemicals and all this stuff, but so much depression and discouragement is simply you're not talking to the right person. Secrets, secrets, secret thoughts, secret problems, secrets, pains from the past, secret disappointments, not talking, is soul poison. Like, so much of it. Can I get an amen? Is this so much getting better is just finally saying the thing you haven't said for 30 years? Or, or less or more, whatever. Okay, thank you. It doesn't have to be 30 years. It doesn't need to take 30 years. And God does this like awesome counseling session. Elijah, get it out. And he just gets it all out. My people stink and they're trying to kill me and I did my best and blah, blah, blah. And it all blew up and blah, blah, blah. And he just goes for it. Honest conversation is a good deal. I, I don't know this for sure, but I would say, I would guess, I'd wager money, like an entire toonie. Um, I'm Scottish, so that's a big deal to me. I would that most churches go wrong when someone stops talking. If you want it for a church that's like alive to one that's dead, someone stopped being honest. And then everybody adjusts to the, the fake. And then everybody's fake. And then fake Christians can't deal with real problems. Newsflash. Hello, somebody. That's my next t-shirt. We're gonna, you think speak truth to errors kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. Wait till fake Christians can't deal with real problems starts rocking the, the pulpit. But look at the kindness of God. He meets him. He feeds him. He moves him. He listens to him. 
And then he responds. He gives him this holy word. And you know what? If you said this, again, I'm doing these awesome generalizations. Trouble is for faith for believers. Trouble is for drawing us back to the holy word of God to meet it with a need we never had before so that we could believe it with a faith we never had before and move in it in a power we never had before. That's what trouble is for in our lives. To bring us to the word so that we believe it with more power and be more useful to God until he puts a shovel full of dirt in our face. And so Elijah meets with the Lord and he gets this awesome holy word, which is a powerful plan. And it's really easy to summarize. It's this. They think they beat my one prophet. I'm going to send against them three in your place. A pagan king, an Israelite king, and a prophet who's going to have twice the powerful blessing that you have, Elijah. That's how the story unwinds, and it's very interesting. We don't see it here, but Jehu is the one who goes and confronts Jezebel and turns her into dog poop. Anybody read that story recently? True fact? Yeah. Jezebel's dog poop. She just doesn't know it yet. But do you see how the discouragement when Elijah meets with the Lord and says yes to it gets turned into God's next wave? Man, I'm feeling hungry. I'm feeling a little discouraged right now. I could use some food. Jackie, can you help me out here? Oh, wow. Awesome lady. You guys are going to help me out with something here because I'm going to try to prove a point about saying yes to like hardships for the sake of God. Okay, so... I have got here two hamburgers, okay? I was about to say they're real hamburgers, but you know where they're from, so. I've got two hamburgers here. I'm going to eat one of them, okay? (laughs) That's funny. I bought them yesterday because you can't get them in the morning, so I know. These things don't go bad. No. Well, they may, they start out how they start out. We don't judge here at Calvary Chapel. But, um, you know, if you put this on a shelf, 50 years later, it'll look way better than me. But anyhow, this is, this burger here is going to stay the same. All right? You track with me so far? You are going to help me make some adjustments to this burger. And then afterwards, you're going to help me choose which burger I'm going to eat. Are you with me so far? So I'm going to eat one. <laughs> It would seem like such a good idea until now. Um, I've got two burgers. I'm going to eat one. This one I'm not doing anything to. You're going to help me with the other one, okay? Woo! Sermon regret. The struggle is real. Okay, so I've got some Frank's Red Hot here. And I've got some pickled jalapenos here, okay? You with me so far? Okay. Wow, this is not feeling quite as... Floppy as it used to. Hey, we're going to get through this together, sister. Don't quit on me now, you know? If I survive this, you're going to survive this. We'll be okay. Okay. So does, does anybody want me to put a little hot sauce on this patty? Okay, okay. Say when. Okay, okay. Say when. Do you see there are drips coming out, so I'm not faking nobody. Okay, so that's quite a bit. I'm already sweating a little bit. Should I put on a bit more? 
Okay, I know where you live, brother, but okay, here we go. Okay. Okay, should I put on a little bit more? Okay, I got at least one. Lynn. Not Lynn. Okay, here we go. So now it's a bit more hot sauce than bun right now. Okay, I'll be okay. That's what they all say. You'll be fine. It'll be great for ratings. Okay. Okay, so I've got five uh, pickled jalapenos here. How many should I put on here, okay? Okay, we're going to do this democratically. So who says one? Who says two? You just need to shout out. Who says three? I hear, okay, thank you. I heard two two voices. Who says four? Okay, who says five? I should put all of them on there. They have no idea. They're playing right into my hands. Yeah, they're they're being evenly distributed. Don't you worry about me. Okay. No, you don't need no nine one one. Okay, so I've got the the hot the hot burger and the regular burger. Who wants me to eat the regular burger? <laughs> okay, thank thank you thank you. For, for five short seconds, Pastor Rob felt loved. <laughs> Who wants me to eat the spicy burger? Okay. See, I'm here to serve, so here we go. Water? Yeah, maybe you should bring my water bottle up here. Oh, man. Right. That's cold. Whoa. Yeah, but it's bringing back so many childhood memories right now. Oh, man. I'm in the McDonald's in Squamish right now. We had a field trip to go see the mine there. Oh, so good. I'm six years old. And then I'm remembering the Mick, uh, Mick, Mick, uh, Happy Shakes? No. What's the one they have at St. Patrick's Day? Those things are poison. Those things are disgusting. Oh. Okay. I got some jalapenos now. Can you hear me chewing? Is this gross? Okay. Okay. There you go. Okay. Woo! Yeah, that's pretty warm. Okay. So, here's my point. Do you want this to have a point? Yeah, that's getting unpleasant. It doesn't have to. You're already satisfied. That wasn't too bad. Okay, I will finish that. Of your own free will, you all chose for me to have the eating story that maximized my discomfort. Because it was way more important or interesting to you. True? Okay. When, when, yeah, flavor, thank you. No, I only had the best intentions the entire time. My pure heart, look at it. It's gold, it's gold. The reality is going through hardship well means way more to everybody else than having the easiest, most comfortable life you can buy. You all cared way more about me eating a hamburger than you ever would because I made it so uncomfortable for myself. And because I enjoyed it, it was a wonderful experience. And because Elijah went to the Lord with his discouragement... 
and sought him and listened to him and obeyed him, Elijah gets an amazing story of actually overcoming. To the point that when Jesus was walking on the earth and went to the top of a mountain to meet with two people from the Old Testament, Elijah gets to be one of the only human beings who came back from the dead to encourage Jesus. The great discourager was brought back from death to encourage the Son of God. Ergo, Christians, can we please say yes to the spicy burger? For the sake of the glory of God and the encouragement of other saints. When we say no to the burger and choose the... It's okay for us, but it often does no good for others. If you will eat the spicy burger, God will make it count for eternity. If you'll say yes to the, to the Lord when you're dealing with discouragement, if you'll resist and seek and eat and try and fight and grow, God will make your troubles count for eternity. And others will see and say, something important happened there. They see it. This is a lived life with Jesus is the thing that people notice. Nobody nowadays wants to hear a sermon. Nobody wants to get told they're doing anything wrong. Nobody wants a correction. But when they see a life that actually works in the face of hardship and suffering, they take note. Because no one can figure out how to live anymore. We got all the junk and we're so, dis- we're so unhappy and we all hate each other. If you can just find one life that swallows the spicy burger and is happy, it sucks attention like a black hole into it. So I'm just going to leave it there. I owe you the rest of my burger. So I'm going to pray and then stuff. Lord Jesus... Would you please help us in our discouragement to turn to you, to welcome your comfort, to obey your instructions, to pour out our whole heart to you, and to hear your plan for making change. Lord, where people are really on the edge, I pray for a rescue. I just say, in the name of Jesus, live. Lord, would you sensitize us to every demonic word that has pierced our soul, where Jezebel has tried to kill us with her speech? Would you help us to see that this is not the word of God, and it's not even true, it's just evil. And I pray, God, you would take out the barb and draw the poison and heal us. So that we might be everyone we're called to be, Lord Jesus. And Father, would you help us to endure what you've called us to walk through for your glory and for other people's good. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said,